From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department shows up among the best employers in more states than any other organization, public or private. New data from Forbes magazine and market research company Statista show DOD as one of the top-rated employers in 32 states. The research company surveyed 80,000 Americans between October 2019 and May of this year. A Coast Guard mission in the Arctic is over early after an electrical fire aboard the icebreaker Healy. The ship was off the coast of Alaska on a research mission when the fire disabled the ship's starboard propulsion motor and shaft. USNI News reports the ship is headed back to its home port of Seattle for inspection and repairs. The Air Force will increase the size and tempo of its next tests for the Advanced Battle Management System. The head of Air Force acquisition, Will Roper, says the next tests will include 33 different platforms, 70 industry teams, and 65 government teams. Breaking Defense reports the demo and test will run from next Monday through Saturday. The Office of the Secretary of Defense is aiming for a fall release of its force structure assessment for the Navy. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says it's because the Navy's version of the force structure assessment didn't offer a, quote, credible pathway to a 355-ship fleet. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former special assistant to the chief of naval operations and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Give me the history of this. How did we get to where we are? What did the, did the Navy do or not do that OSD liked or didn't like? Uh, well, thank you, thank you for having me on today, Francis. Uh, what apparently was the, the issue was is the Navy's proposal initially uh, did not have uh, a sustainable plan to be able to afford the fleet over the long term. Uh, the cost to buy the ships is going to be higher than the uh, Defense Department was likely to get, or the Navy was likely to get, and also the cost to sustain them over time was likely to exceed what's available in the operation and support accounts. So first of all was that financial feasibility. And I think also operationally, uh, the SECDEF was concerned that the Navy's proposal didn't match up with the operational concepts that were being developed uh, by the Navy and by the, the Office of the Secretary of Defense and, and Joint Staff. Um, for future warfighting. So these concepts were going to require a fleet that was much more distributed, uh, much more rebalanced to smaller platforms than the planned fleet. So I think those are the two main issues that the sector probably found uh, to be problematic with the Navy's initial proposal. The potential challenge that we have, of course, Brian, is that the force structure assessment that's coming out will probably be written to the national defense strategy that's now two, maybe three years old itself. And we're, uh, there's a shorter time until we expect to see the next NDS than there has been since the last one came out. At what point do we get out of the cycle of writing to the last NDS and writing to the next one? Uh, that's a great question. So I think one of the uh, benefits that we're gonna have in terms of coming to the new administration, whether it's the current Trump uh, administration or the new Biden administration, uh, I think a lot of the uh, thinking in terms of national security is going to be the same. Um, so a lot of the main elements of the existing national defense strategy will probably persist into a new one, um, there's going to be, you know, obviously adjustments at the edges, but the main elements of uh, a focus on deterrence, 
uh, a focus on using uh, distributed forces and using multi-domain operations to a greater degree. Those are likely to persist because those are kind of key uh, core elements of the, the concepts that the services are developing that would inform a strategy that would come out of a new administration. So I think that there's probably a benefit just because there's a continuity in terms of the thinking among the national security community about the best ways to deter aggression by a China or a Russia or even smaller players like Iran or North Korea. Last time you were on the program, Brian, at the very end of the conversation, we touched on the fact that you have some insight into this. What can you tell me about what anybody's looking at, whether it's what the Navy's already put out or what OSD could potentially do? Uh, well, I think, like I said before, um, we're likely to see a final result come out of this project in the fall. So within the next month or month and a half, uh, we'll see a product come out of this, whether it's, it's uh, coming out of the Secretary of Defense's office, but more likely it'll come out of the Navy in terms of their actual force structure assessment and force structure requirements. Uh, they also are going to have to provide a shipbuilding plan uh, to the Congress because they're going to potentially hold up operation and support funds for the Navy if they don't receive that shipbuilding plan uh, within the new fiscal year. Uh, so I think we're going to see that in the next month and a half or so. I think it's likely to show a fleet that is uh, rebalanced uh, towards smaller platforms. So the, the Marine Corps has talked about this new light amphibious warship. Uh, the Navy has talked about a large unmanned surface vessel that'll probably be manned initially. Um, so that's a smaller platform that you see today with the frigates and destroyers that the Navy's building. So this rebalancing towards a fleet that's got a more diversity of platforms, um, a larger number of small platforms, uh, will be a key element of that future force design. Uh, I think you're gonna see in terms of uh, carriers, probably a you know similar number as today, maybe a slightly smaller number. Uh, submarines will probably be similar to the current requirement, uh, but I think the main changes you'll see are going to be in that surface combatant and the amphibious, amphibious ship categories. Among the smaller platforms, do you expect to see platforms that are either uh, repurposes or just outright uh, redevelopment of current platforms that already exist, or will we get back into a situation that we had with the LCS a couple of years ago where they had to create something basically from scratch? Uh, well, that's an area of contention. So I think you know, the Navy, uh, its natural predilection is to pursue a new design platform to achieve the highest level of new capability that's possible. Um, they have a future large surface combatant that's currently in their program that they would like to pursue as a new design. Um, I, I think, though, that the fiscal constraints are going to force them to think uh, uh, maybe doing something that's more derivative of existing designs. So uh, a destroyer that's maybe a, you know, more like the existing Arleigh Burke destroyers rather than this new cruiser-sized ship they want to pursue. Uh, and then on the smaller combatant side, I think we will see a lot of ships that are derivative of existing platforms. The Navy's large unmanned surface vessel, they want to make uh, be very similar to existing offshore support vessels that are used in the oil and gas industry uh, and are used offshore for other, other purposes. Um, and then the light amphibious warship, there's a lot of existing designs for essentially beachable amphibious ships that drive up onto the shore and, and unload their, their Marines. Those designs are out there in the foreign Navy. So there are existing designs you're likely to pursue for those. Um, I hope that the Navy uh, thinks about doing more derivative designs in the larger ship categories to try to avoid getting into that, that problem that we've seen before where we start a new design and it becomes unaffordable uh, very quickly. We have about 30 seconds left. Does the fact that the frigate design appears to be a more derivative, uh, uh, along, more along the lines of a derivative design, give you any indication that we might see a lot more of that, or is it potential uh, that that could just be a one-off? Uh, it's encouraging, um, but I'm still, the Navy, the way the Navy is still talking about the large service combatant is a, a new design shift. Um, I think you're seeing the same thing when it comes to future submarines, where they're looking at a new design shift. 
Um, so the frigate um, exercise uh, is encouraging, but I'm hoping that they, they look at that as, a, as an approach they can pursue with these other platforms as well, because I just don't know if there's going to be money to start something new uh, from scratch. Brian Clark, thanks as always. Great to see you. Oh, you're welcome, Francis. Thank you for having me on. Up next, an up-close look at the coming defense budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the trends shaping the tip of the spear. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The defense budget for fiscal year 2021 will total $716 billion. That's down 2.2% from fiscal 2020. Seamus Daniels is program manager and research associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He and his colleague Todd Harrison are out with their annual defense budget analysis. Seamus, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Is the fact that the budget is down and that we and you anticipate shrinking budgets in out years the main takeaway that people should focus on right now? Francis, thanks for having me. I think the basic takeaway from the FY 2021 request um, is that the administration projected that the top line for both the DOD budget and the total national defense budget would remain flat through FY 25, and that's remain flat with inflation. Now, the interesting thing is that was back in February when they released the budget, and they're projecting that flat top line even as the Budget Control Act caps uh, expire after FY21. Now, obviously, after uh, a number of COVID relief packages and potentially more, uh, CBO projects that the total deficit for FY20 could total somewhere near $4 trillion. Um, so we should expect to see even greater downward pressure uh, on the defense budget. And one of the potential challenges there is something that you and I have talked about before and Todd and I have been talking about since we've been talking a decade or more, and that is this passage. The MILPERS, the military personnel budget in FY21, is 4.6% higher adjusting for inflation than it was in 2020, yet the total active duty military is only 1% larger with virtually no net change in the size of the Guard and Reserve. If that trend continues, this is going to force some pretty dramatic choices in 21, 22, and beyond. Is that fair to say? You're absolutely correct, Francis. Well, the long-term trends that we've been seeing is that the MILPERS, the military personnel part of the budget, um, has been growing significantly over time. And it's increasing year, year in, year out, especially as you have pay raises, which then multiply down the line. And it's not only the military personnel part of the budget, but operations and maintenance, O&M, is also going up year after year. So what that is doing is essentially crowding out other parts of the budget, like acquisition programs that are focusing on modernization, uh, which is a major priority under the national defense strategy. I don't see anything to indicate that you and Todd are suggesting that military personnel don't deserve pay increases, so that's not the issue. One of the things that, I, that, that struck me in, in your work here is you and Todd write, while history's not a reliable predictor of the future, it's helpful for understanding the range of plausible outcomes. What are those plausible outcomes that you think people should be paying attention to, Seamus? Well, when Todd and I are referring to history there, we're looking at it in the context of fiscal and economic trends. And so what we've seen in the past uh, is that we've seen downturns in the defense budget um, following historically high deficits. So a lot of people believe that there was a downturn in the, in the defense budget at the end of the Cold War 
That actually happened uh, about five years earlier in the mid-1980s under Reagan, in which there was a historically high deficit and we see a downturn in the defense budget. Um, again, we can fast forward to 2008, Francis, uh, with the 2008 recession, that prompted another major downturn. Um, so obviously there's a lot still up in the air and it could depend on the 2020 election and the outcome of who controls the chambers uh, in Congress to see how serious Congress is going to take the deficit and what its impact is going to be on defense spending. Well, and it strikes me that in another passage here, you allude to the broader economy separate and apart from political issues. Um, you write, political environment could shift markedly once an economic recovery is underway in 20, uh, fiscal 22 or 23. That's assuming that the economy is able to open based on events surrounding COVID. Is that what you're alluding to there? Yeah, I think there are a number of factors that we're alluding to. Um, obviously, whether the economy reopens, um, but also looking at different stimulus packages uh, and their ultimate impact on the deficit, um, given that. But ultimately, Francis, it, it comes back to Congress and whether Congress and at what point Congress decides to start tackling the deficit. About two minutes left, Seamus, and the big chunk here for me was this passage. DOD can preserve strategic maneuver space by preparing for a drawdown now, but the longer these preparations are delayed, the narrower the range options available will become. That means start now to think about what 23, 25, and 30 look like. Is that, is, is that too far out to think about this, Seamus? No, I don't think it is, Francis. What we've seen, um, especially when we're looking at pending or coming defense cuts, is that DOD needs to start the preparation early. They need to start communicating with Congress early to make sure their priorities are saved uh, when Congress decides to take action and eventually cut the defense budget to reduce the, to reduce the deficit. Uh, we saw back before sequestration in 2013, DOD didn't prepare. So we see across the board cuts, which really negatively impact uh, DOD. So they need to start having the conversations now. They need to start planning now because the longer they wait to make cuts and to plan, the more painful those cuts are going to be. Should that, about 30 seconds left, Seamus, should that discussion be happening at the programmatic level in what, keep, what they keep and what they get rid of? Should that be happening at the service level, uh, the enterprise-wide level, or all of the above? I think when we're talking about implementing the strategy and prioritizing modernization, that has to happen at the department level, at the service level, and then it'll, it'll filter down obviously to the programmatic level. Um, but they really need to target saving those modernization priorities um, that the department has really honed in on as, uh, as necessary to implement the NDS. Seamus Daniels, thanks as always. Great to have you back. Thanks, Francis. Up next, maintaining aircraft carriers and submarines in the Navy. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's delaying the upkeep for so long? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Navy shipyards see delays on about three-quarters of maintenance on aircraft carriers and submarines. 
unplanned work is one of the main causes of delays. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Diana, welcome back. Thanks for coming back on the program. I, you know I'm a huge fan of the highlights pages of the work that you and your colleagues do at GAO. And on this one, you write under why you did this work. Navy spent $2.8 billion in capital investments to address shipyard performance, among other things, in fiscal 15 through 19. However, the shipyards continue to face persistent and substantial maintenance delays. Is one connected to the other, or are those coincidental facts that you were able to use as the basis of your work? So it turns out that there are a number of reasons why, uh, why the Navy has been consistently late in completing planned maintenance. And our report was focused specifically on uh, aircraft carriers and, and submarines. Certainly one of the factors that we looked at, we looked at 10 different factors were uh, involved the, uh, the facilities themselves. We've issued prior reports on that. Um, but it turns out that the, the two main factors that we identified as part of our analysis were the, um, was the existence of unplanned work, right? The Navy goes to great lengths to try to plan in advance what it's going to do when it repairs submarines and aircraft carriers. When they bring them into port, they find extra things that need to be fixed. The second major factor has to do with workforce, which involve, which means either not having enough of the right people or not having people who are sufficiently trained to do the work properly. So that, I, I guess I read it right then, because the two notes that I scribble are, is this an issue of poor planning or an issue of poor execution? It sounds like the answer is yes, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes. And, and I think it's, it's, it is important to, to point out that this, this planned maintenance that we're talking about in, in, is, is tremendously complicated. You know, you're talking about doing substantial overhauls to submarines and aircraft carriers. The work as planned typically takes anywhere from six months to three years. It involves hundreds and typically thousands of people. So the Navy starts planning for just 30 months before a submarine or an aircraft carrier goes into port. So there are a lot of complicated moving parts involving people, parts, facilities, equipment. So there are many places where it can potentially go off the rails. And unfortunately, we found that 75% of the time it does do that, and the Navy completes the maintenance later than planned. Did you find specific issues with the planning process where the Navy maybe didn't account for, it didn't give itself extra bandwidth, or didn't anticipate correctly how long a particular type of maintenance or group of types of maintenance would take? Or are the problems more broad than that, Diana? So it's a, it's a combination of both. One area in particular we found where the Navy um, didn't plan properly was in the amount of time that it, it planned on uh, completing the work. They underestimated the amount of work hours that it would be necessary to, to complete the work um, by about 36%. That's substantial because when you're talking about over a period of five years, you're, you know, it's three or four million uh, work hours. So that's, that's a lot. Um, to help fill that gap, the Navy relied, that the shipyards in particular relied on excessive use of overtime. That puts a strain on an already strained workforce. Um, so when people are working consistently on an overtime basis for months and years at a time, it's not surprising that in some cases the quality of the work is going to suffer. Is going to suffer. You write about the Navy's structure to tie these issues together, Diana, and you write, the Navy initiated the Shipyard Performance to Plan Initiative in the fall of 2018, that didn't that hasn't turned out the way that the Navy anticipated it either, has it? 
that, that's still underway. And on, on the plus side, we do want to give the Navy credit for uh, coming up with this approach. We think it is very important, but they're still in the relatively early stages of a process. Like, among other things, they're diving into the way they go about planning and executing maintenance for aircraft carriers and submarines. They're looking at the different ways to measure that progress. We found that they'd only completed about half of those planned measures, and they still hadn't linked those measures to, to goals, to action plans, nor had they set up a monitoring process in place to ensure that senior leadership was getting the necessary momentum behind the effort to see it through to, to successful completion. But it sounds like when they do reach those points, it will be some a tool that you believe will be useful to them to solve some of the problems that you're assessing right now. Is that a fair read on my part? Absolutely. If, if, P2P, if performance to plan, or P2P, which is what the Navy refers to it as, is successfully implemented and incorporates what we recommended in our report, which was developing goals and measures and action plans and, and a monitoring mechanism, it will certainly help the Navy address this um, this critical problem with being chronically late in uh, performing maintenance on aircraft carriers and submarines. We have about 30 seconds left, Diana. Do you know a timeline? Is there a timeline for getting that plan into place? And does that work, in your view, with what the Navy needs to accomplish? So the Navy is working on this. They said that they've agreed. They have agreed with our recommendations. Uh, they don't have a specific timeline yet. I do know that this has a great level of attention at the highest levels of the Navy because when ships and submarines are late coming out of maintenance, they're not available for training, they're not available for operational missions, and our national security is therefore impacted. Diana Maurer, thanks very much for joining me again. It's great to have you back. Thank you very much. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.